Mark's Madness. Yeah, we're back. We're doing it again. Uh, <laughs> we're doing, we're it, doing again. it again. I suddenly we're lost all, half my voice We're there. all coughing. We're all going to die. Uh, that mm. being said- that, We're all going to die. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is Mark's Madness Pod. We read books. Welcome back. Uh, we are continuing our reading of Black Reconstruction in America, but as is tradition, David, any current events or anything like that rattling around that you'd like to discuss before we jump um, into the reading? Well- yeah, obviously, uh, I was not prepared to, to cover uh, the tragedy. Well, the, I mean, we already knew about the, the tragedy of, of the genocide of residential schools. Uh, but as Canada Day came upon us, uh, they discovered more residential schools. So the count of what I can confirm was three different residential schools and somewhere around 1,100 uh, unmarked graves found, which is, of course, incredibly sad, incredibly tragic. Um, and reminds us of the, the genocide um, and the, the colonial genocide that that both of these settler colonies, America and Canada, or United States and Canada, um, are formed upon um, in North America. But also, uh, I did see someone mention something about it being like five different residential schools and like over thirteen hundred or fifteen hundred. But I don't I don't know what the other residential schools were. Um, but because of the participation of the Catholic Church, uh, who has a deep colonial history themselves, um, there was suspicion when a Catholic Church was burning on Canada Day, uh, there was just kind of a loose accusation that indigenous people did it, which is possible. And if they did, more power to them. But there's no remote evidence of who even did it. And, you know, so you can't go out and Jerry and just go, well, indigenous people did that because that's essentially, you know, sending bigoted people and, and you know, especially bigoted people who are Catholic um, out there headhunting, yeah. right? You're you're laying the blame on that. Um, that said, if it was them, you know, more power to them fighting back like that. And if it wasn't them, then fine on whoever did it, unless it's for some nefarious reason we haven't figured out yet. Um, also, obviously, in Colombia. Uh, protests are raging on. They have been raging on for a long time. We had the kind of spots of, of coverage as things uh, kind of heated up in um, Palestine uh, with Israel, you know, bombing and invading uh, East Jerusalem. And that's, of course, something that, that's ongoing. And we said, you know, Israel is is U.S.'s number one satellite power and Colombia's number two and important in this Western Hemisphere. Well, there's not been as much coverage on it, um, and it hasn't ebbed and flowed, but it is consistently still happening, indigenous uprisings and people fighting back against the Colombian government um, and being violently repressed. Uh, and there was even recently a statue of Christopher Columbus uh, being Ayo. taken down down there by protesters, which was pretty great. Um, but that fight's raging on, of course. Um Trying to think of anything Obviously, else. Obviously, the uh, high rise in Miami that fell down um, is oh, more yes, and more looking yes. like that's going to be in excess of 150 uh, deaths. Mm -hmm. um, they're they're doing the thing now where they're like, oh, well, they're still missing. Um, yeah, let's. Yeah, they they'd have been found exactly. By now. And so if they're, they're not, I, you're still yeah. calling this something like three confirmed dead, and then oh, well, 150. No, I mean this is this is a massive tragedy. Um, yes. Um, also, something that uh, that's been spiking back up. So the CDC is insisting that people that have been vaccinated don't have to wear masks, and I get it. You know, I mean, what's a systemic thing? Try to individualize it with like, well, you're not wearing a mask instead of like they're not shutting things down. 
can be frustrating, can be tiring, and it's been drug out over a year and things like that. But uh, there's a Delta variant that's been spiking up. In fact, uh, where uh, we live here in Missouri has been the biggest state for yep. it. Um, the Delta variant, people with vaccines, to my understanding, have not been symptomatic, except in like the rare cases where they, they didn't gain efficacy, right? Mm-hmm. So like if it's a 90% efficacy vaccine, then in that 90%, even if you would have had symptoms in the Delta variant, now you, you don't, the vaccine's been effective in that manner, and the vaccine's been very good about stopping the spread of the Alpha variant, but the vaccine does nothing to stop the spread of the Delta variant. So now immunocompromised people, people who are not vaccinated, children, can all still be spread, even if you've had the vaccine, can all still have that Delta variant spread to them. Um, and so even if you've been vaccinated, that can prevent you from harm, but it does not prevent you from spreading the disease. So it is important to keep your mask on out there and uh, continue to be cautious. Um, and that continues to, to reflect itself in the whole job market thing. You know, I mean, people are, are fighting back, work striking, quitting. They're not risking their lives for these below living wage jobs anymore like they used to. And less and less people are getting hired. Um, and on top of that, you know, of course, uh, very unfortunate and tragic note is this is almost 700,000 people died of this COVID mishandling, you know, yet another kind of silent genocide that happens over and over by the, this government and this economic system. And that takes an enormous amount of workers out of the market. So you mix that with the people not wanting to risk their lives for $7 an hour, $9 an hour, $11 an hour, what the hell it is, you know, the, the that's where you're going to get all of these like, well, no one's going for any jobs. No one's going for any job. But don't forget that there's a lot of people that still would have had that job and they're dead and we're just not even we're not even talking in. about it we're not even considering it no and then also including climate disasters there's not just the collapse of the tower in miami uh, due to climate change which of course means that the poor areas in miami live higher up because the beachfront is the valuable yeah. thing so now that now that climate change is coming they're going to try to gentrify and push the poorer people out of the high grounds so that the rich people can have the high grounds and the the poorer people can live in the danger areas as always happens uh, but the entire Western United Good States, God. I think they just broke from the heat wave. I think it's breaking a little bit Did right it? now, but it's still the last time yeah. I had checked, it was at least 45 confirmed dead from heat related deaths in the Pacific Northwest. And that yeah. was a, that was a uh, generous or conservative estimate. Um, yeah. So, again, not not as acute as the tragedy from the cold in Texas, which I still don't know how people didn't Mussolini Ted Cruz after that. I, 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 it still shocks me how he was able to go to Cancun and come back and joke about it and not even be confronted and harassed in restaurants. Um, but still, nonetheless, I mean, this is much broader and very, very deadly and tragic and harms people in a lot of other ways. You know, I mean, just like the cold, this pushes people... This pushes houseless people, you especially, know, even yes. further into suffering, especially. And and that is anyone in the Pacific Northwest doing, I mean, I know um, for a fact my brother and sister-in-law are working to make sure houseless people have water and things like that. Um, currently, anyone, mm-hmm. anything you can do to, to help out, um, especially your your vulnerable communities in your area um, right now, I mean, any anything is helpful. Um but, but again, this is the kind of stuff that you saw, and I know for a fact that there are groups um, groups that organized during the Portland um, uprisings, during the resistance, um, mm-hmm. have, have mobilized, have, have used those same 
uh, same method, same organizing tactics, same same connections that they've made to help uh, during these times, which just shows again kind of the the necessity of organizing and what why that is needed all the time. Oh, yeah, the the importance of organizing because first and foremost, you know, I just just well, let's say a revolution kicked off tomorrow, right? How are we, are we going to set up an alternate economic system? How are we going to support each other? You're going to have that practiced. You're also going to build trust yes. and be able to politically educate people. And more importantly, what are you fighting a revolution for? You want these people to survive. You care about people. You want to survive. And how are you going to build these systems to support each other's survival if you're not out there organizing for it right now? Exactly. Um, so, you know... It, this is very, very important to get on there. And, and we've said, you know, the, the best thing to do is to, to slightly edit the famous Lenin quote about decades where nothing happens and uh, weeks where decades happen. It's really more decades where organizing happens and weeks where, you know, decades happen. Yeah, exactly. <sighs> that being said, uh, you ready to jump into the, the reading this week? Absolutely. All right, ladies and gentlemen. And why don't we redo that one paragraph so that we're all oh we're ready to do it guys because the the stars at night are big and bright deep in the heart of texas we're going to tejas people and texas had in 1860 182,000 negroes and 420,000 whites thus putting this state among those who where the negro population was a decided minority and white immigrants destined greatly to increase the preponderance of the whites the division of the planters and poor whites was less distinct in this state than in many others. There was plenty of rich land and the poorest white men could get a start. This increased the demand for labor. Texas was one of the southern states that had considerable prosperity during the war. She was outside the area of conflict. Excellent crops were raised and slave labor was plentiful. Many slaves were deported to Texas for protection, especially from Louisiana and Arkansas so that Texas could furnish food and raw material for the Confederate states. And on the other hand, when the blockade was strengthened, Texas became the highway for sending cotton and other goods to Europe by way of Mexico. There were many losses because of distance, the dishonesty of traders, and lawlessness. Nevertheless, there were these were offset by the high prices. When the war neared its end, the Confederate troops in Texas got out of hand and began rebelling and looting. Towns like Houston were burned and clothes and food of all sorts of goods and all sorts of goods were stolen. The Texas Republicans stressed the ruinous effect of freeing four million ignorant and helpless blacks and said that the people of the North would be glad to witness a return of slavery because it would raise larger crops and a richer market for Yankee manufacturers. Oh, goody. This paper did not think that slavery could be would be abolished for at least 10 years and that in the meantime, compulsory labor would continue. Under the Army officials, the compulsory labor did continue, but when the officials of the Freedmen's Bureau arrived, they began to supervise contracts. This was there was the unusual or there was the usual complaint that Negroes were not keeping their contracts together with reports that they were working well. President Johnson appointed A.J. Hamilton as provisional governor. He was a native of Alabama, but had come to Texas before the war. He had refused to join the seceding states and fled to Louisiana, where he became a brigadier general in the Federal Army. When he arrived in Texas, he found everything in confusion. Money had been stolen from the Treasury, the Capitol building was without a roof, and there was general oh, anarchy. Boy. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> Hamilton protested to Johnson against the tendency of the farmers to keep Negroes as slaves. The question of the le legal status of the Negroes, the governor left to the courts, and the courts contradicted themselves in their decisions, some of them admitting Negro testimony, others refusing it altogether. There continued the strong feeling that either the Negroes were going to remain in bondage or compensation was going to be paid for their emancipation. 
I love compensation paid for their emancipation. Not to them for the whole slavery yeah. thing, but to the, the, the people that Yeah, no, them. I mean, we're not talking... We're not talking reparations. No. We're talking the sale of their freedom, yep. right? The lawlessness continued. Robbery and murder of unionists and freedmen were common, and outlaws defied arrest. One county reports that the civil authorities are helpless because the country is full of ruffians and lawless men. Another, that the laws cannot be enforced without the aid of the military. The inspector general on the staff of General Howard declared early in 1866 that Texas was in the worst condition of any state that he had visited, that almost the whole population was hostile feeling and at to in feeling and action to the United States. There was the mere that there was the mere semblance of government and that the whites and Negroes were everywhere ignorant, lawless and starving. The assistant commissioner for Texas under the Freedmen's Bureau arrived in Texas in September 1865 and began to appoint local agents in December. He found freedmen not willing but anxious to improve every opportunity for their moral and intellectual advancement. In January 1866, one Black Belt County reports that two-thirds of the freed population were then at work at good wages and that 7,000 7, contracts had been filed already and that the unemployed freedmen were becoming scarce. By the end of January, there were 26-day and night schools of 1,600 Negro pupils enrolled. There was the usual bitter attack upon the presence of Negro troops late in 1865 and early in 1866. After much delay, an election was held January 8, 1866, and a convention was scheduled to meet in Austin in February. There were strong differences of opinion among the delegates. Darlemple said, Darlemple. My opponents, each and all, concede something to the Negroes, some more, some less, approximating to equality with the white race. I concede them nothing but the station of hewers of wood and drawers of water. Oh, good. Nice of you. Oh. If a Republican yeah, form of government is to be sustained, the white race must do it without any Negro alloy. A mongrel Mexico affords no fit example for imitation. I desire the perpetuation of a white man's government. Ah, good work, Darlimple. Colonel yeah, M. Dar- yeah. Yeah. Ass pimple, that's what we're just going to call him yeah. now, because I can't pronounce his name. Colonel M.T. Johnson of Tarrant County declared his opposition to granting the Negro any political rights whatsoever and insisted that he should be made to work by uniform laws regulating pauperism, labor, and apprenticeship. But at the same time, he asserted the necessity of treating him with justice and kindness in his helpless condition. Oh, my God, the paternalism. There seems to have been only one candidate, E. Degener, Degener, a prominent German of San Antonio who openly advocated Negro suffrage. David. One prominent Texan, John H. Reagan. Whoa. Hope he's not related. Jesus Whoa. Christ. Um, a prisoner of war at Fort Warren, Massachusetts, wrote a thoughtful letter in August, which was published in Texas in October. He pointed out that the South was in the position of a conquered nation, that Texas would not be restored until it did what the North demanded, and that the North demanded protection against secession, the abolition of slavery, and civil rights for the freedmen. Moreover, it was probable that this alone would not satisfy the North and that it would demand Negro suffrage. Reagan, therefore, advised that Negro testimony be admitted in courts and that an intelligence and possibly a property test be set for the admission to the right to vote regardless of race or color, provided that no persons previously entitled to the vote be deprived of that right by the new requirements. And that is so, so obviously a racial casting every time, right? Oh, um, you have to own property and have a certain amount of education to vote. Unless you've already voted, then even if you don't qualify, it's protected. And who already voted? The white people. Oh, good. Oh, good. Um. Oh, shoot. I just lost my spot. 
Here it is. President Johnson secured parole for Reagan, and it was hoped that he would have influence on the state. But his wise advice raised such an opposition that he long refrained from further discussion. A refusal to accede to these conditions would only result in a prolongation of the time during which you will be deprived of the civil government of your own choice, and will continue to subject to military rule. When the convention assembled, the former secessionists were in control. The governor, in his message, stressed the necessity of giving full civil rights to the Negro and possibly of political suffrage. He said, I do not believe that the great mass of freedmen in our midst are qualified by their intelligence to exercise the right of suffrage, and I do not desire to see this privilege conferred upon them. But if we fail to make the political privileges depend upon rules of universal application, we will inevitably be betrayed into legislation under the influence of ancient prejudices and with a view only to the present. I think that human wisdom cannot discern what is to be the future of the African race in this country. I would not be willing to deprive any man who is qualified under existing laws to vote of the exercise of that privilege in the future. But I believe it would be wise to regulate the qualifications of those who are to become voters hereafter by rules of universal application. Once again, the people that don't want black people to vote are like, look, this has got to be universal. It's got to be universal. And I'm just making sure that educated people, maybe some people with property, you know, they get the right to vote. But uh, they don't get, yeah, they get the right to vote, but not, not these, these, you know, poor, foolish people over here. Uh, oh, by the way, if you already were qualified to vote, you get to anyway. That definitely doesn't just leave out the black masses. Yeah. The convention, yeah, the convention dawdled and spent most of its time electioneering for the senatorships and entered into a metaphysical discussion as to whether secession was illegal from the beginning or should simply be disavowed at present. Finally, the usual Southern circumulations were adopted. African slavery had been terminated by the United States government, and therefore it should be discontinued in Texas. Negroes were to have property rights, but could testify only in cases involving Negroes, although the legislature could, when it wished, give them full rights of testimony. The German Degener was alone in his advocacy of Negro suffrage. There was some debate on repudiating the civil debt, which had been recklessly increased to nearly $8.5 million. After a session of eight weeks, the convention adjourned, having failed to take re- any really advanced step except the grudging recognition of emancipation. Immediately, the preparations were made for the upcoming elections, and a considerable party wanted to drive out all Union men and nullify the emancipation of Negroes. The planters supported the president of the convention as governor and opposed Negro suffrage. Their ticket was elected by a large majority and eventually recognized by the president. Oh, good. Former Confederates elected as senators were unable to make the test oath. They and the representatives were refused seats in Congress. The 13th and 14th Amendments were presented to the legislature, the first without comment and the second with unqualified disapproval. The 14th Amendment was rejected by a vote of 70 to 5 in the House and a large majority in the Senate. Good God. Good God. Reagan again called attention to the trend of events and advocated qualified Negro suffrage and the right of Negroes to testify in the courts. His letter produced only irritation. The new head of the Freeman's Bureau, General Kid- Kidu, I almost called him Kiddo, one letter away from that, <laughs> Kidu, uh, favored the employers against the Negro laborers and established heavy fines for enticing laborers away from the employers. Oh, thanks, General Kiddo. Uh, a black code gave certain rights to freedmen not prohibited by the Constitution, but forbade intermarriage, voting, holding public office, serving on juries, or testifying in cases where Negroes are not concerned. 
Johnson urged that civil rights be extended to the colored people if it had not already been done. Violence continued in the spring and summer of 1866. The town of Brenham was burned, soldiers broke up a Negro ball, and there was general lawlessness. Gangs of horse thieves and desperados were roaming about. Federal officials reported that Union men and Negroes were fleeing for their lives and that murders and outrages on Negroes were on the increase, while criminals were always acquitted. Cadu substituted yearly contracts instead of monthly contracts in the cotton districts and tried to assure the freedmen of their wages. He repudiated the labor law passed by the legislature, but his successor adopted some of its provisions. In March 19, 1867, Sheridan was made commander of the 5th Military District, consisting of Louisiana and Texas. Unable to secure the release of large numbers of Negroes in prison on trivial charges, Sheridan issued his jury order excluding from jury persons who were unable to take the test oath. Sheridan declared that one trial of a white man for killing a Negro was a farce. Meantime, the registration of voters under the congressional legislation began. The Negroes were eager to vote. A new state Republican Party was organized in the advocacy of a free common schools and free homesteads from the public land to all without discrimination of color. E.N. Pease was appointed governor by Sheridan, July 30th, 1867, and Throckmorton removed. Pease was a native of Connecticut, but had been in Texas since 1835, and during 1853 to 1857 had been governor of the state. His oppo- he opposed secession, there arose among Republicans a severe difference of opinion as to how far the former Confederates should be disenfranchised. The president, in August, removed Sheridan from command and substituted Thomas. Ten days later, he substituted Hancock for Thomas. Hancock assumed command in November. He was a Democrat and a follower of Johnson. He reversed Sheridan's order concerning juries and declared that the county country was in a state of profound peace. <laughs> Pease flatly contradicted this and said there had been 100 murders during the past year, with only 10 arrests and 5 trials. He declared that because of Hancock's orders concerning juries, there had been an increase in crime and hostility to the government. Agitation arose because it was said that Negroes were carrying arms, although it was well known that every white Texan was habitually armed. I love habitually armed. Yeah. A Negro meeting which was addressed by a Supreme Court judge was broken up, and the judge complained none but a Johnson man could be tolerated here. He must cuss Congress and damn the N-word. General Hancock is with the president politically and will only execute the letter of the law to escape accountability. There is not an intelligent rebel in all the land who does not understand him. During 1867, there was a bad feeling between the races. The whites especially resented arms in the hands of the Negro soldiers, and the impossibility of convicting convicting white aggressors upon black men was continually manifest. A judge declared that it was impossible to convict a white man of any crime on Negro testimony where the crime was against a Negro. To convict a white man of murder in the first degree was out of the question. Oh, my God. Registration of voters had begun in early summer of 1867, but went on slowly. The conservatives first proposed not to register and then afterwards changed their mind and registered with the plan of staying away from the election. The election was held in February 1868 and showed that comparatively few whites had been disenfranchised. 59,633 of 14% of the white population registered in 1867 and 49,497 Negroes or 27% of the colored population. A majority of the whites voted against the convention, but the blacks carried it. The total registration was 109,130, and the white registration was about equal to the total vote in the campaign of 1866. The election was quiet, and the convention was an overwhelming 
uh, overwhelming vote of 44,689 to 11,440. In the Constitutional Convention, it was characteristic that there it was characteristic that among the 90 members there were 12 reactionary white members from the black belt elected undoubtedly by all two common methods from the uh there were nine negroes and delegates from the black districts bordering on the brazos and trinity rivers jt ruby came from galveston he was a educated he was an educated negro and was elected from the white district of galveston Ruby was a mulatto from Philadelphia and for 15 years was the leader of the Negroes. He was rated rated as an astute politician and a man of unusual ability. He was very popular in Galveston where his brother held a position in the Custom House. E.J. Davis was a new white leader of the Unionists. He had been an opponent of secession and an officer in the Union Army during the war. He was one of the first to defend Negro suffrage. Governor Pease sent a message in which he declared that from December 1st, 1867 to June 1st, 1868, in 67 counties out of 127, 206 murders had taken place with few attempts to punish the offenders. He recommended schools and homesteads and the encouragement of immigration. Ralph Long of Limestone, a Negro, was an outstanding leader. It was he who offered the resolution annulling certain court decisions, which declared that the Emancipation Proclamation should not take universal effect. His resolution was rejected by two-thirds vote. Oh, my God. On because, July of course, 2nd, it was. It was too good. Of course it was. On July 2nd, a committee on lawlessness and violence reported 509 whites and 486 Negroes killed, 1865 to 1868. More than 90% of these were murders committed by white men, the report continues. In other words, according to the lowest calculation, the peace administrations of General Hancock and Buchanan has to account for twice the number of murders committed under the Sheridan Throck Throckmorton administration and three times the number committed under the Sheridan Pease administration. Moreover, fuller reports show that the, since the policy of General Hancock was inaugurated, sustained as it was by President Johnson, the homicides in Texas have averaged 55 per month. And for the last five months, they have averaged 60 per month. Is it for the commander of the 5th Military District to answer to the public for at least two-thirds of the 330 or more homicides committed in Texas since the 1st of December, 1867? Charged by law to keep the peace and afford protection to life and property and having the Army of the United States to assist him in doing so, he has failed. He has persistently refused to try criminals, rejected the prayers of the executive of the state and of the commanding general of the District of Texas for adequate tribunals and turned a deaf ear to the cry of tried and persecuted loyalists and knowing whereof he, we affirm and in the face of the civilized world we do solemnly lay to his charge the death of hundreds of loyal citizens of texas a responsibility that should load his name with infamy and hand his very memory to coming years as a curse of ex of excre ex excreation execration execration excretion execration a curse delegates were sent to delegates were sent to congress with this report while the houston telegraph advocated their assassination holy shit yeah that is intense just sheer numbers alone that is i mean that is a genocide that is a lot of murders what is it like 60 murders a month jesus mm -hmm. christ um and execration is the the act of cursing or damning or like damn you like that's execration there um, we go thank you the convention in making the Constitution came to the question of the suffrage in August and then postponed it till after the recess, uh, which took place after 92 days of work. 
The reason for the recess was differences among the Republicans and fear of mob law among the Democrats before the presidential election. Mobs appeared. G.W. Smith, a white New Yorker and a leader of the Negroes, was jailed and lynched, oh God, uh, together with several of his black followers. Feuds were rife in many of the counties. Bands of Ku Klux roamed about. Negroes were boycotted or given employment as they joined the Democratic groups. So this is getting very intense and deadly. Um, In January, when the convention came together again, the question of suffrage was discussed. The Democrats proposed to exclude Negroes, while unrestricted suffrage was defeated by a vote of 34 to 31. The final proposition... So close. Yeah. Very close. Um, the final proposition allowed Negroes to vote and disqualified only those c- classes mentioned in the 14th Amendment. This finally passed by a vote of 30 to 26. The whole fight on suffrage was not a fight against Negro suffrage, but the question as to how far former Confederates were to be allowed to vote. The measure finally passed, admitted the great mass of these. Hamilton, the former provisional governor, secured the final triumph of a policy of leniency towards the ex-Confederates. So giving them leniency while they're, you know, murdering dozens every month brutally. Uh, This divided the Republicans into two factions, one which wished to disqualify the Confederates more completely, and the other which was willing to share the practical control of the Confederates. Three Negro members, Ruby, Williams, and Newcomb, revolted against the prolonging of the secession of the convention and resigned declaring that the convention was prolonged for the purpose of subsidizing a venal press. Ruby declared that the present Reconstruction Convention has lost through many of its members all regard for dignity and honor as a legislative assembly, and that its continued assemblage will only terminate the disgust the entire country. The convention never actually adjourned, nor was the Constitution ever adopted by actual vote. The most meritous features of the Constitution were the abolition of slavery and the liberal provisions for the schools. The Constitution established free public schools and decreed that the receipts from public lands should go to the school fund, besides other revenues. A state superintendent of public institution, or I'm sorry, public instruction, was appointed. As a final result, Davis became the leader of the radical Republican Party, while Hamilton was the leader of the conservatives and was backed by Johnson. Thanks fucking again, Johnson. Thank you, you Johnson. Uh, The result was a contest in which Hamilton could only hope to win by getting a large number of white Democratic votes, while Davis sought the bulk of the Negro votes because of their fear of disenfranchisement at the hands of ex-Confederates. The election took place in 1869. It was quiet, although there were accusations of fraud in various parts of the state. E.J. Davis, by efforts of Ruby, who marshaled Negro votes, was elected governor by a small plurality. In the ensuing legislature, the 14th and 15th Amendments were adopted almost without opposition. And March 30, 1870, the representatives of Texas were admitted to Congress. Thereupon, E.J. Davis became governor instead of provisional governor. In April, Governor Davis complained of the continuance of lawlessness in many parts of the state. Ruby, the colored leader, was still active in Galveston, working for a nuke charter for the city. Every effort was made to aid the railroads by renewing land grants and making appropriations of $16,000 in state bonds for every mile built, again with the goddamn railroads. Back to the railroads! Davis favored railroads, but opposed subsidies and vetoed some of the bills. I actually kind of like Davis opposing the subsidies for the railroads. Good good on you, Davis. Uh, He kept on declaring that a slow civil war was going on in Texas and pressed for a state police force. 
Later, a railroad grab involving $6 million subsidy was passed through the legislature and indignity and indignantly vetoed by the governor. In counting up these charges against Davis' administration, not a suspicion can rest against his financial honesty, of which his veto message was an enduring monument. There was a small increase of debt. When Davis came into office in 1870, the state was out of debt. When he left office in 1874, the debt was $4.4 million. The rate for state taxes had risen from 15 cents in 1860 to $2.17.5 on a $100 valuation in 1866, exclusive of about 60 cents in addition, which was interest on bonds donated to railroads. There had been an ineffectual effort to establish a free public school system in Texas in 1845. In 1869, provision was made to give the public school funds the proceeds of the sale of all public lands, which resulted in a magnificent endowment. The Constitution of 1869 authorized the legislature to divide the state into school districts and appoint school directors. Every effort was made to wreck the school system in order to exclude Negroes, but gradually became solidly established. As the election of of 1873 approached, there was great excitement. Davis's chief reliance was on the Negro vote, and he strove especially to get out of out the Negro vote in the Black Belt counties, where it was largely suppressed. The whites were determined to drive him out. It was, a, in a sense, a revolution. There is no shadow of a doubt of fraud or intimidation at this election. Davis Negroes were in many communities ordered to keep away from the polling places while white men were underaged were voted. <laughs> I'm just imagining a bunch of 14-year-olds going yeah. in to vote. It's just funny to me. The total vote was surprisingly large, probably because it was fraudulent. <laughs> Davis was defeated by a vote of 85,000 to 42,000, and the majority of the legislature were Democrats. I just, I just That's love an outstanding said just, just, just straightforward and blunt from Du Bois. I love That's you, a Du Bois. big turnout. I mean, it was fraudulent. That's a lot. It was, fra- but still. It was absolutely fraud, but they turned out. The state Supreme Court held the election irregular because of the case of a single individual, and Governor Davis attempted to prolong his term. But this meant civil war. Negro militia was on hand to prevent Democrats from taking possession of the Capitol, and open hostilities were imminent. Davis telegraphed Grant, but military aid was refused, and finally Davis retired. The problem in the frontier state never reached its vital economic phases until long after Reconstruction. During the Reconstruction period, many Negroes held office. There was a lack of whites who would take the test or oaths or who were willing to act as supervisors, registrars, and clerks. The Negroes were usually on these boards and sometimes were appointed even when whites were available. They became indeed so outstanding as office holders for a while that the Houston Telegraph sounded a warning that unless the full strength of the whites should be enlisted, there would be a large number of Negro office holders and that they would try and take the land out of the hands of the present owners. There were Negroes in the state militia and on the various police forces, and they formed a military guard when Davis was trying to keep the Democrats from taking forcible possession of the Capitol. In 1872, for the first time, Negroes voted for president. Norris Wright Cuny, a young colored man born in 1846, became sergeant-at-arms in the Texas legislature and warmly attached to Governor Davis. In 1871, CUNY became one of the school directors of Galveston County. In 1872, he was inspector of customs for the state. CUNY ran for mayor of Galveston in 1875, and his successful Democratic opponent testified to CUNY's interest in sound policy and honest government. He continued for many years to be the incorruptible and intelligent leader of the Negroes of Texas. 
The borderland between slavery and free labor, including District of Columbia, Delaware, Maryland, and West Virginia, Kentucky, and Tennessee, Missouri, and the Indian Territories, were vitally affected by the abolition of slavery. All right, we're transitioning, guys. We're transitioning. We're out of Texas. Uh, In history, during and after the Civil War, it is not unusually included in Reconstruction, and yet it has analogous, Jesus Christ, problems arising from abolition and enfranchisement. Unfortunately, however, monographic material upon which a study of the Negro and these states might be based is lacking in many particulars. There is particularly nothing about the Negroes in Delaware and the Indian Territory, and in the case of other states, the problems are incessantly conceived as being exclusively problems of the white population, so that the development of the Negro is followed with great difficulty. Here remains, therefore, a most interesting and neglected field of historical and economic exploration. The District of Columbia is of a special interest because it is the seat of the United States government. The status of slavery there not only was intrinsic of intrinsic importance, but the nation and the world actually saw slavery in Washington and judged the whole system largely from what they saw. At the beginning of the 19th century, there were 4,000 Negroes in the district. They increased to 10,000 in 1820 and 13,000 in 1850. At the beginning of the war, the Negro population stood at 14,000. Of this population, there were 783 free Negroes. In 1800, 6,000, or a majority of the black population in 1830, and 11,000 in 1860 when they largely outnumbered the 3,000 slaves. Immediately after the war, the Negro population greatly increased, reaching 43,000 in 1870, 59,000 in 1880. During these years, however, the proportion of Negroes in the total Washington population did not vary greatly. It formed one-third in 1810 and one-third in 1880. It fell to its lowest point, 19%, in 1860. Because of the prominence of the city, the abolition campaign was centered was certainly early concentrated upon slavery in the district and gained partial triumph when the slave trade was abolished in 1850. In 1861, a bill to abolish slavery in the District of Columbia was introduced by Senator Wilson, and after much opposition from the border states, it passed in the Senate in the House in 1862 and was signed by President Lincoln April 16th. The result of this law made Washington a mecca for free Negroes, and in a single decade, the Negro population increased 200%. These Negroes had begun their own self-supported schools in 1807. The civil rights of Negroes in the district were fought for continuously by Charles Sumner. Hey, Summy, welcome back. Hey, yeah. Hey, other current event that we missed. Insert current event here. Okay. Donald fucking Rumsfeld bit the dust. (laughs) (laughs) Suck it. (laughs) That's all I've got there. Suck. Rest in piss, you pit, you bastard. Uh, He secured the law of April 3rd, 1865 to make a valid Negro testimony in the district courts. He fought segregation on railroad and streetcar lines and the law which prevented Negroes from carrying mail. On this motion, a Negro was admitted to practice before the Supreme Court in 1865 and another in 1867. The right to serve as jurors was not conferred on Negroes until March 1869. David? After the abolition of slavery in the District of Columbia, there came an agitation to give the Negroes the right to vote. A large mass meeting was held at the Asbury M.E. Church in 1865. A petition signed by Negroes who could read and write was sent to Congress, and after a long debate and postponement for a year, the Negro was finally enfranchised in December 1866. The bill passed over a veto by President Johnson. 
<laughs> Take that shit, Johnson. Sorry, uh, Johnson. <laughs> in November 1867, there were 13,000 white voters and 6,000 Negroes. In 1871, at the election of a delegate Congress, 17,700 whites to 10,700 Negroes voted. The economic status of the Negro in the district was made very difficult during and after the war because of a large increase in the Negro population. Nevertheless, Negroes accumulated a good deal of property. When, for instance, it was charged in 1865, they did not own $40,000 worth of property in the whole city. It was proven that in one square of their holdings aggregated $45,592. Yet there were poverty and suffering among, among the Negroes. In 1867, it was estimated that 32,000 Negroes in the district, one half were destitute. Congress appropriated $15,000 on March, 18, or March 16, 1867 to relieve the freedmen. In February 1871, an act was passed changing the government of the District of Columbia. The old charters and courts, which had been inherited from the Maryland government, were discarded, and a territorial form of government established with a governor and legislative assembly composed of a council and house of delegates. The governor and council were appointed by the president and the house elected by the people. The powers were similar to those granted to new territories, including the right to borrow money, assess taxes, and carry on the government. Alexander R. Shepard, a personal friend of President Grant. He ran a plumbing business and was a native of the district. Grant appointed him governor. <laughs> Apparently Mario's governor of D.C. He changed Washington from a poorly paved, badly lighted, unattractive city into a model city and beautiful capital. The work was done and rapidly and was accompanied by all the current political jobbery. Under any circumstances, the transformation would have cost large sums of money, but with the graft and misappropriation of funds, the district was plunged into a debt of many millions of dollars. After sharp agitation, the government was changed again, all the people disenfranchised, and the district put under the rule of three commissioners. Naturally, in this case, as in the southern states, the harm and dishonesty of Shepard regime was charged to the colored voter. While well, the beauty and accomplishment of the reborn city was put to the credit of the white civilization. Isn't that nice of everyone? That's so convenient. Yeah. There was about as much sense in, in one charge as in the other. Disenfranchisement in the city came at the demand of overtaxed real estate and of reactionary property interests hiding behind the color bar. Hmm. That sounds totally mm. unfamiliar. I'm also wondering, so, if you're familiar with the, the layout of the D.C., there's essentially two really distinct cities right there's the actual capital side with all the rich people and the politicians and the lobbyists and stuff like that right and it's of course overwhelmingly white and then i believe it's the east side of dc but kind of across the river there is the much poorer black residents and it is like two worlds it is deeply yeah. segregated um Maryland had, at the beginning of the 19th century, 125,000 Negroes. The number increased gradually to 155,000 in 1830, decreased in 1840, rose in 1850 to 165,000, and in 1860 was estimated at 171,000. The free Negroes in this population numbered 19,000 at the beginning of the century and increased rapidly and steadily to 83,000 in 1860. Thus, a black population of Maryland was almost evenly divided at the opening of the war between free Negroes and slaves. 
Maryland, along with Virginia and other border states, had some part of the business of raising slaves for sale further south, but not as large a part as these other states. On the whole, her Negro population were artisans, laborers, and servants, and the institution of slavery was insecure because of the ease of escape to northern states. The Black Code of Maryland forbade... Um, where did I go? There you go. Forbade the immigration of free Negroes, although in 1862 the penalty for sale into slavery was abolished. In 1865, an immigration was permitted. The Assembly of 1867 repealed many parts of the Black Code, but among other things did not allow a colored woman to be competent witness against the white father of her child. God damn. Uh, during the war, nothing was done to interfere with the institution of slavery, but the Convention of 1864, charged with forming a new constitution, had a considerable number of delegates in favor of abolition. Finally, a clause for immediate abolition of slavery was passed by a vote of two to one. There was only three voters? That's weird. Um, that's a, that's a solid, that's a, that's a tense I room. guess that's a ratio. Yeah. Gotcha. <laughs> Very small Johnson. Um, <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> when the Constitution went before the people, it was accepted by a narrow margin. A constitutional convention was held in Annapolis in 1867, and another constitution adopted by an overwhelming popular vote. It did not declare that men were created equally free, and, and compensation for freed slaves was demanded. This represented a reactionary movement as compared to the Constitution of 1864, you don't say. Yeah. Uh, during, the cam- during the campaign, the Unconditional Union Party in 1866 pledged itself against Negro suffrage while the Republican Party convention in 1867 had colored men among the 200 delegates from Baltimore and a larger number from the counties. A colored clergyman opened this convention. A colored veteran said that there was no need to tell his people how to vote. We have not, he said, the ability among us to occupy high positions of honor. We are like a newborn babe, taking our first steps to political life and strength, supported by the Radical Party. Another prominent leader said, It is because we are a minority of the voting population of Maryland that the necessity has been forced upon us of casting around to see by what means we can extradite ourselves from our present position. And another still, whenever we get suffrage for the colored man, I am satisfied there is no man that can ever betray us again. The resolutions of the convention called for the equality of all American citizens and all civil and political rights and urged the Republican Party as a last resort should the coming conservative convention constitution not give impartial suffrage to the appeal to Congress to f- for support. One color delegate, a member of the Committee of Resolutions, rejoiced to see a day of real political equality between whites and blacks. Another said he was ready, like Simeon of old, to depart in peace and now that he has seen salvation. In 1866, Governor Swan, the man who wanted to arm his militia with federal artillery, addressed an open letter to the editors of the Baltimore American in which he said, I am utterly opposed to universal Negro suffrage and the extreme radicalism of certain men in Congress and in our own state who have been striving to shape the platform of the Union Party in the interest of the Negro suffrage. I look upon Negro suffrage and the recognition of the power in Congress to control suffrage within the states as the virtual subordination of the Negro in the state of Maryland. But it's for what? their own huh? good, Nathan. Don't don't let what? them vote. It's for their own good. It's how they get free if they don't vote. I consider the issue upon this subject as well made in the fall elections and in the most important that has ever been brought to the attention of the people of the state of Maryland. 
Governor Swan was answered in the editorial in The American a few days later, which read, at least nine-tenths of the Union men of Maryland have taken position with the Congress of the United States. The governor will find when too late that he will not be followed by a corporal's guard of those who placed him in his present position in the course he has taken, and that his future affiliation must be with the disloyal whilst his antagonists will be the true and loyal men of Maryland. Notwithstanding the effort of the Republicans, the conservative constitution without Negro suffrage was adopted a few months later. Negroes did not get the right to vote on, until after the 14th and 15th Amendment. Few colored men had been nominated to elective office in Maryland in 1872. A Negro ran for Congress in the 5th District, but withdrew in favor of a white candidate. Negro labor had a larger chance in Baltimore because of skilled work by the blacks in brick-making, oyster-shucking work as stevedores, and they practically had a monopoly on ship caulking. After the Civil War, there came a good deal of competition with foreign labor. From the testimony of many persons, the colored people of Baltimore appear to have been actively engaged in all manner of business ventures even before the Civil War. These antebellum enterprises were carried on generally by individual ownership, but immediately after the Civil War, numerous cooperative movements sprang up among the people all over the city. Cooperative grocery stores, coal yards, beneficial societies, and other kinds of business met with marked success and for short periods, but each one in its turn finally failed, owing either to lack of capital or trained business management or both. We need more, we need more business majors, David. We need more business majors in here handling the business management. Prior I can tell you what, I, I, the one degree I do have is technically business management. You don't learn shit with that degree. Blur. Prior to the war, the colored people of Baltimore had no place aside from the churches in which to hold public entertainments. To meet this need, several colored men, John H. Butler, Simon Smith, and Walter Sorrell, formed a partnership and purchased in 1863 a large three-story brick building on Lexington's, Lexington Street near North and had it converted into a hall. They named it Douglas Institute after the grand old man from Maryland. Besides public entertainment of all sorts, the hall was used as a meeting place for fraternal orders. The Chesapeake Main Rail Marine Railway and Dry Dock Company, a company owned and controlled by colored men, was organized in the year 1865. The company was capitalized at $40,000. The stock was divided into 8,000 shares of $5,000 a share. The corporation lived for a period of 18 years, or from 1865 to 1883, and for many years was very successful. It finally gave up business in 1883. The organization of the ship company saved the colored caulkers, and so for they became members of the white caulkers union. The failure of whites to drive out the colored caulkers lessened their efforts to drive colored labor out of other fields. Changing economic conditions ended this company, but it was an object lesson to the whites as well as the blacks of the power of capability of the colored people in their industrial development. Before 1865, the public schools depended on local authorities. Then an educational revolution took place and the states began to control the schools. The law of 1865 provided that the part of the school taxes paid by the colored man should be used for Negro schools. The law of 1868 ordered a 10 cent tax on a hundred dollars for state schools. And this was all colored schools could expect down to 1872, except by donations from philanthropists. And we know just how awesome philanthropists are. Oh yeah. And that's definitely not a power grab, right? Because then if you dare upset them or, or not massage their egos, guess who can just, pull the money so they're not really 
giving away their wealth and power. They're just exercising it in a way that makes hey, them Bill feel Gates, good. Hey, Bill Gates, how you doing? Yeah. <laughs> uh, how's that divorce working for you? Um, that being said, that is where we're going to stop for this week. This is the the end of the reading for now. Um we're moving right along, gang. We are we're getting dangerously close to seeing an end in sight for this book. Yes. Terrifyingly um, close. Terrifyingly close. Uh for us at least. I mean, we're we're we've been doing this for for all of our natural lives as far as I'm concerned. It's we're the only book I can remember ever reading existing outside of this book. I don't remember ever doing a thing other than this goddamn book. I genuinely um, had forgotten which books we covered. Uh, to, like Oh, There's times it's a mystery I've looked back to me. and I've been like, oh, we did imperialism. Oh, that's good. We did imperialism. It was a. We did black skins, white masks, for God's sake. No, we didn't. No, we, we did a wretched of the we earth. We did wretched of the earth. I read black skins, white masks for that, which makes yes. me more prepared for red skins, white masks, which which we will do at some point. But right one now, one way or another, one way Bands or another, Eternal Island, you hear us now. That's right, We're coming for you. That's right, but. <laughs> But for now, this book feels like but for now, the entirety of our lives, and I'm scared to exit it. It's- I don't know what will happen when I'm not reading this weird taupe paper. Like, when I'm reading a different book, I don't know what I'm going to do with myself. I really I, don't. It's, I, it's I been no such idea. a huge part of my life at this I'm, point. I'm that- going to have to remember how to go back and take notes and summarize things again, because it's been so long. You think we're going to be summarizing Kwame Nkrumah? <laughs> No, but we'll be summarizing Redskins White Master in the collaboration. And, That's right, we will. We will and, be summarizing White Master. And there's, other, White there's Master. other outlets of political education besides just the podcast. It just This podcast is there so... Is? It's, it's been so time-consuming and inundating. No, 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 no. We we love this. We would not. This is this is a labor of love. We would not do this if it was not something we absolutely felt was, was useful and necessary and... Honestly, we'd keep doing this if y'all weren't listening, because this is just, again, at the end of the day, we're going to get to this in the disclaimer. This this is a podcast that was started by two dudes that wanted to read books together. That's uh, right. And we're just hoping other people are are benefiting from this in any way. But this is this is Nathan's political education. This has now become David's political education because we're getting into books that he hasn't read. Um well, this, this is, is a book this is, I haven't read. We've been on this for like two years. Two years. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, but that being said, this has been Mark's Madness Pod. We do read books. Um, and if you want to reach out to us, there are a number of ways you can do that. You can email us, marksmadnesspod at gmail.com. Uh, you can reach out to us on Twitter, at marksmadnesspod on Twitter. Um, we we tweet so infrequently these days. Looks at David sternly. I I will I'll get better. I'll do better. I'm sorry. You missed episode sixty nine. You I had such an opportunity. No, no, it's fine. No, it's that's not what it's there for. There are there are better voices on Twitter that need to be amplified. And if our account can help amplify those voices, great. We're doing we're doing we're doing good work there. Yes. Um, and as someone who grew up as a Cardinals fan, I will not miss seventy. <laughs> Come on now. Um, that being said, uh, you can also reach out to us on Discord. Our Discord is the Mark's Madness Discord server. You can find that link in our Twitter bio. You can also email us if the link is not working for whatever reason. But so far, we've been doing pretty good. Everyone seems to be finding it okay. Yeah. Um, uh, that is just a community of like-minded people. They're just, again, a great group of people um, where there is book club going. Book club is about to start. If you're interested in jumping in on the ground floor of something, um, book club is about to start working on Mao. 
Um, we're going to do the shorter works of Mao, um, I think, on Practice on Contradiction and then a bunch of the speeches that he gave. Um, so a great time to jump in if you just want to kind of engage and listen to other people talk or, or have a larger audience to kind of bounce ideas off of or just listen to other people talk about how they're interpreting a work. Um that being said, but again, great community, great people. I, I highly recommend it. Um, that also being said, I'm going to throw in a shameless plug. Um, uh, if, if anyone remembers Discord before Mark's Madness took over, it was the Dumb and Awful Discord server. Dumb and Awful's been on hiatus for uh, a number of months now. They are coming back July 13th. So as you listen to this episode, they'll be coming back in uh, less than a week. So uh, if anyone if anyone just wants to go back and and listen to Dumb and Awful or 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 patronize their work, they are comrades. They are great friends, and they are they are great people that have helped us out at numerous times throughout our our time. So please, 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 please uh, uh, go and listen to that show when it comes back out. That being said, David, do you want to give us our fun disclaimer? I was wondering if you were getting so excited about your besties being back that you were going to hey, my, all right. remember my the disclaimer. besties being back is is nothing nothing that <laughs> that stops us from disclaiming. Uh, Nathan and I, of course, started this podcast as he alluded to earlier because you know it's best to read books of history and philosophy with other people, especially revolutionary philosophy, so that you can get the most out of it. And we decided, hey, we'll record it in case. <coughs> <laughs> all right and we David decided dies. yeah I, I survived uh and we decided hey you know we'll record this in case we want to make our group larger than two and we did and so we're glad you're here for it um since the beginning having that group larger than two we're certainly hoping that you are in your own book clubs reading groups um political education groups within the groups you are organizing with uh within the parties you are out there doing your on the ground work with or with any other group that works alongside that um and hopefully we can be complimentary. We can add another voice in the room. We can give you more input, more context and help you get more out of those works. Save for that. Save that your, you know, political, political education or reading group is doing shorter works or more applicable works to what you're organizing around or something like that. Uh, and you're reading these books along with us. Hopefully we can be your reading group. We can give you that context, that input, those other ideas, um, and a voice to bounce things off of and help you retain it. And save for that. Say we're either doing more of an enhanced ebook like this book where we're reading it word for word and then adding the context or something where we summarize it. Whatever we can do to make these works more accessible to you and have them out there guiding your actions. Cause when theory guides your actions, that is called praxis. And without theory, that it's just an act of charity. You don't know which way your actions are taking you or how to apply them politically. And theory without those actions is completely useless. They go hand in hand. They're tied at the hip. Amen. As always, that being said, this has been Mark's Madness Pod. My name is Nathan. My name's David. And we will talk to you all next week. Bye. Bye.